So one of the questions that I hear a lot as pastor is, Chip, does God care? Like, does God care about me? Does He care about the things that are happening or have happened to me? Does He care about the things that I'm seeing on social media, in, in the news that's happening around the world? Does God care? And if I'm going to be honest with you, that's a question that I've asked at points in my life. Like, God, do you care about this? Like, do you care that right now my heart is being ripped out? God, do you care that this thing that it seems really unfair is happening right now? And I'm sure you've asked that question. Maybe even watching this, you've been asking that question recently. Does God care? Well, what we're going to talk about for just a few minutes now is that, yeah, God does care. And we see that answer extremely clearly in one of the minor prophets called Amos. So Amos is a short book in the back of your Old Testament, uh, minor prophet that we're going to talk about in the, as part of this series. And in this little book uh, that's full of judgment, we're going to see, really we find a very clear, yes, God cares about those things that have happened to you. God cares about the things that uh, he sees going on in the world. In fact, Amos is going to show us that God probably cares more than we really want him to. And maybe that doesn't make sense right now. That's fine. Hang on to it. We'll come back. But to get started, why don't I just give you a little bit of context around Amos, who he was, and his little book of prophecy. Because I think understanding the concept may make some of this that we're going to talk about fit together. So uh, Amos is one of Hosea's contemporaries. If you remember last week as we began this series, Minor Prophets, we talked about the prophet Hosea. Amos was around the same time as Hosea. Like Hosea's book was broken into two parts, the real life story of Hosea and Gomer and the anthology of prophecies after, uh, Amos's book is also broken down into two parts. In the first part, chapters 1 through 6, we see the words of Amos. Uh, and then chapters 7 through 9, we see the visions of Amos. And those phrases, words and what he saw, we see that even in the opening of the book. But maybe the most interesting thing for my part uh, about Amos is that Amos prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel. If you were uh, apart last week, you, you heard us say that Israel, the nation that God had set up to be his own people, had split through civil war to form a northern kingdom. Israel, Ephraim, Syria was what it was called. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, well, like Hosea, Amos also prophesied it to this northern kingdom of Israel. But unlike Hosea, Amos was from the southern kingdom of Judah. And I'm sure this created an interesting dynamic, right? Because in a lot of ways, what we're going to see is that Amos, who we're going to see in a little bit was a shepherd, uh, is probably like a country bumpkin come to town. Who, who is this guy who, who's from the other side? Who's this guy who's coming up here to talk to us and tell us? It, it's kind of like this. You grow up in the South. You might talk bad about your family, but nobody else better talk bad about your family. We don't need this outsider coming in and getting in our business. And there, there was probably that kind of dynamic with Amos. He was from the south, but his ministry and prophecy was to the north. Let me just kind of read for you, I think, the summary that's really good uh, from the New American Commentary that sets up the book of Amos. 
Uh, it says this, Amos testified that the Lord took him from tending the flock and said to him, Go prophesy to my people Israel. The sovereign Lord commissioned Amos to bear his message of judgment upon Israel, a judgment so destructive the nation would not survive. Israel's sin against God caused God's judgment against Israel. And the coming day of the Lord would be a day of darkness and destruction, not light and salvation for this sinful kingdom. Some of the house of Jacob, another name for, for Israel, however, would survive the judgment of God and form the nucleus of a restored, blessed, and secure future Israel. So, so man, that's a good summary of Amos because it is a hard prophecy. Judgment is coming because the nation sinned and it's going to be a judgment they will not survive. They are going to be captured. They're going to be led away from their homes. Their towns are going to be destroyed. They are going to be judged by fire. That's the words of Amos. And really that's what makes Amos really distinct from some of the other minor prophets is just the fierceness of the Lord that's put on display inside of this prophecy. We see a fierce God coming to His people through Amos' prophecy. Matter of fact, in the first two chapters that we're going to look at together, we see Amos over and over again pronouncing judgment and the words of the Lord are, I will not relent. I will not relent. We're going to see in the first two chapters, the Lord says that through Amos eight times. This is a fierce book. It's a fiery book. It's a book of hard things. Uh, and I really think it's important for us uh, to look at together today. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at how Amos begins this book. And man, he begins it with the fierceness. It's, if you've got your Bibles or your screen, whatever, we're going to be in Amos chapter 1. And we're going to look at the first two verses as we jump in. So if you've got that, look with me at Amos chapter 1, verse 1. This is what we read. The words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, what he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So we got the setting. There's Amos. Told you he was a shepherd. Tekoa was a town in the south. He prophesied during the reigns of these kings. And specifically the people who read this prophecy knew the earthquake that he was talking about. But then in verse 2 he goes on. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and makes His voice heard from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the summits of Carmel withers. So man, what a lot to get started. I want to jump in and show you a couple things uh, real quick. Number one, like I said, Amos was a shepherd, right? And Amos the shepherd in the world's eyes was not a great man. He was a shepherd. He was a sheep breeder. He was from the fields of the south. But Amos, though he was not a great man, was greatly used by God. And the reason that I want to just take a minute, almost like a rabbit trail, and point this out is we've been telling you over and over again that God has a call on your life. The sermon series we started this year with, Called to More, is all about the fact that you can in your work, whether you're a shepherd or a school teacher or a stock trader, you can join God through your work in His work of redeeming and reconciling this lost world to Himself. And here's the point. Like Amos, when we embrace our calling, God's going to use that in ways that we never imagined. Amos was tending his sheep. And the Lord said, Amos, get up. I'm fixing to use you in a way that you would have never dreamed. 
But it's important for us to remember that though this book is named Amos, Amos is not the central character of the story. Amos as a prophet is just the mouthpiece that God uses. Matter of fact, it is this God who roars, right? The Lord roars. It's this God who roars that's the main actor on the stage. See, Amos is really just the mouthpiece here. Uh, he is introducing the main character of God. And man, when the curtain is pulled back, the opening roar of the Lord serves notice to the people. And I think it shows three things, right? It shows this roar that He is divine. Notice that the Lord says roars from Zion and Jerusalem. Those were holy cities. Those were places where God dwelt among His people. So this Lord who's roaring is a divine Lord. But not only that, this roar is comprehensive. It says that the shepherds are going to hear it in their fields and it says the top of Mount Carmel is going to shake. This roar isn't just singled in and locked in. It is comprehensive and everybody hears this roar. And more than that, you know that when he roars, means he's on the move. He's getting ready to pounce. So this little prophecy of Amos introduces the Lord who roars and man, he is fierce. He is fierce and he comes out of the gates swinging. And as Amos begins his prophecy to the nation of Israel in the north, they must have been thrilled to hear how this prophecy begins. Because from the rest of chapter 1 all the way into chapter 2, this roaring Lord pronounces judgment upon judgment on Israel's foreign neighbors, many of whom are their enemies. If you got your Bible, we're going to kind of jump from prophecy to prophecy. They're close together, about a paragraph long. But I just want you to look at how each of these are introduced. Follow with me, starting in verse 3. It says, The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four, because they threshed Gilead with iron sledges. And then he skips down. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Gaza for three crimes, even four, because they exiled a whole community, handing them over to Edom. Skip down. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Tyre for three crimes, even four, because they handed over a whole community of exiles to Edom and broke a treaty of brotherhood. Go down a little more. The Lord says, I will not relent for punishing Edom for three crimes, even four, because he pursued his brother with a sword. He stifled his compassion. His anger tore at him continually, and he harbored his rage incessantly. There at the end of chapter 1, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing the Ammonites from three crimes, even four, because they ripped open pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. And then there in chapter 2 verse 1, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Moab for three crimes even four, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. So right out of the gate, man, the Lord is swinging. Amos is prophesying six prophecies of a Lord not relenting in his judgment against these surrounding, in many cases, enemy nations. I love what Pastor Mark Dever, who pastors Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., love what he says about this. He said, if the northern Israelites were put off by Amos' southern accent, you can be sure they liked what he said about their enemies. This is a preacher we can listen to. He tells us what's wrong with everybody else. 
I love that, right? They were locked in. He's drawing a crowd. Hey, yeah, tell me more about those people. Tell me more about what they did wrong. Tell me more about the hellfire you're bringing down, God. But then, starting in chapter 2, verse 4, the judgment starts to hit a little closer to home because now the Lord has pronounced judgment on Judah, who, yes, they have fought with in civil war, who is a southern kingdom, but really still their blood and their relative. Look at what Amos chapter 2 verse 4 says. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. So, wow, okay, a little closer to home. And then in chapter 2 verse 6, the Lord lays the nation of Israel low because he sets his sights and his judgment squarely on them. Look at verse 6. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes even four because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral and in the house of their God they drink wine obtained through fines. So, does God care about what happens to, to you and to others? Does God care about what happens in the world? Absolutely He does. Because these judgments that come upon the six foreign nations are all about that, how they have treated other people. All about their crimes against humanity. And then when He gets to Judah, it ratchets up a knot, even though the punishments are the same, the judgment is different because Judah is how they've treated the Lord and then Israel gets both barrels. It's how they've treated people and how they treated the Lord. But I can just imagine the nation of Israel hearing this, right? And they're hearing these judgments on these four nations. Yeah, get them, get them, go get them, God. And then they hear a judgment. Okay, yeah, I, I, or Judah, yeah, I, I, I get it, go get them. And then it hits them and they're saying, whoa. I don't know. So this kind of reminds me of something I saw on TV one time. It was a TV show, maybe you saw, a show called Parking Wars, where it followed around parking attendants in major cities who checked meters, and if the meter was expired, gave parking tickets. If they were double parked, gave parking tickets. And there was one episode, it took place in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, a lady who was working was handing out a ticket, and the lady whose car she was ticketing runs outside and, as the show was famous for, began to just bless this officer out, just laid in to her left and right and this lady's just taking it you know that's her job she's just taking it but then the woman who got the ticket says God's gonna get you and the switch flipped in the parking attendant's mind she looked at this woman and said honey God is not your dog you can't sick him on whoever you want and I love that because man that hits home, right? Because that's what we feel sometimes. We want God to sick them on the people that we don't like. We want God to get our enemies. We want God to get those who we think have mistreated us. But when, it, when he turns his sights back on us, well then we're not so sure. See, Amos' message that God cares, we can see it very plainly through his judgment on Israel's foreign neighbors. However, when we realize that he cares so much, but he cares 
so much that he cares about what we do, that's when we start to get uncomfortable. And that's what I meant at the beginning. We want to know, does God care? Amos answers, yes. But he also says, but he doesn't just care about what others do. He cares about what you do. He cares about those you've done wrong. He cares about the ways that you've turned your back on him and not been obedient. And so there's judgment on Israel here as well. And I think it's important that we, that we note that God doesn't turn his sights on us because he doesn't love us. In fact, the opposite's true. Last week, Hosea showed us God's love is redeeming. Well, this week, Amos shows us God's love is fierce. And he loves us fiercely. And that's why he sets his eyes on us and our sin and shortcoming. It's not because he doesn't love us, but because he does. See, I think we're just not used to this kind of love. We're, we're not used to this fierce love of the Lord. We are used to a placating love. A love that pats us on the back and says, whatever you want, whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you feel good. But I think even in our hearts, in our day-to-day -day life, we know that's not really love. Like, for instance, if your kid is out playing in the road and there's cars rolling by at 55 miles an hour, you're not going to say, well, baby, I know it's dangerous, but I love you, so go have fun. No, you're going to grab him by the arm and you're going to chew his rear end out and you're going to tell him that if he ever plays in that road again, he's going to wind up looking like that roadkill possum that he's seeing, right? Because you love him. And love can be fierce when we see others in danger. Love can be fierce when we see those that we love going astray. And so what we find in Amos is that God cares for us. He loves us too much to let us give our affection and our allegiance to lesser things that will take us down the wrong path. Again, Pastor Mark Dever says this, Trials are meant to turn the face of rebellious people toward God. In stupidity and selfishness, we refuse to learn. But in mercy, he sends more trials. So the fact that we undergo trials, the fact that we are continually broken and convicted over our sin, the fact that we have to continue being pruned and shapen and molded by God into his image is not because he doesn't love us, but because he loves us so much. His love is fierce. And like I said, I think that makes us uncomfortable, right? We're not used to that kind of love. And so where we find ourselves left is with these two opposing forces that are pulling our hearts in opposite directions. Yes, we want a God of justice, but a God of justice for our enemies. And for ourselves, we want a God of mercy. And so it's those two tensions that we find in conflict. We want justice for others, but mercy for ourselves. They do these things because they're wicked. We do these things because we have a reason. They speed because they're reckless drivers. We speed because we're in a hurry and have important things to do. They are rude and a jerk. You just tell people like it is, you know? But here's the thing. We can't have this either-or dynamic. It can't be a God of justice for them, but a God of mercy for us. And can I tell you, 
That's why the gospel is such good news. Because the gospel says that it's not either or, it's both. We have a God of justice who will judge sin, but we have a God of mercy who is ready to forgive sinners. See, the gospel is full of this justice and full of this mercy, and it's at the cross that we see them both fully displayed. What do I mean? Well, if you got your Bible still open, go with me to one more passage. Look at me, look with me at Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It's going to begin familiar if you grew up in church, especially Awana's, but I want to read the verses after and show you this context. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him, that Him is Jesus, as the mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him, again Jesus, to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. What an incredible passage. But this passage explains how God is a God of justice and a God of mercy. See, when we think of Jesus on the cross, we think, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, right? So God uh, sent Jesus to the cross because of His love. That's true. Romans 5, 8 says God demonstrates His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But don't miss the other half of that. What Paul says here is that he did this. He says it in verse 24. He says it in verse 25. He says that God demonstrated him for his righteousness. That this was a demonstration of his righteousness. So it wasn't just the love of God that put Jesus on the cross. It was the righteousness of God that put Jesus on the cross. Why? Because sin must be punished. We don't want a God who just waves a hand at sin and says, no, it's not a big deal, come on into heaven. Why? Because if He did that, He doesn't care. If God just waves away sin without punishment, then how can we truly say God cares? But Amos shows us, no, God does care. He does judge sin. His eyes are on the earth. And when Jesus went to the cross, yes, it was to display God's love, but it was also to display His justice because there on the cross, Jesus absorbed in Himself the full the full anger, wrath, and punishment of God against sin. And He bore it all. Why? So that you and I wouldn't have to. I saw it on social media like this this week. It said that Jesus drank the full cup of wrath without mercy so that we could drink the full cup of mercy without wrath. And so when you look at the cross you see that God is both a God of justice and a God of mercy. He is just in that He punishes sin, but He is merciful in that He sent His Son to take all of that judgment in Himself. And so now all left for us to do is to trust it and to live in it. Right? Maybe you grew up in church again. To believe it and to receive it. You and I no longer have to stand before God and earn our own righteousness. 
to try to mitigate that punishment where fear or fearful is coming. We can look to Jesus as the sacrifice that our sin demanded and the price that our sin cost and know that He paid it in full. And so now when we turn from our, our sin, when we put our faith and trust in Him, we can have His very righteousness before God. Because that's the other half of the gospel, right? Not only did Jesus take the punishment our sin deserves, but He gives us the righteousness that He earned. That's the beauty of the gospel. And what we find out over and over again, and man, as much as we talk about it, there's a good chance you're hearing that today and you're like, Chip, that's the first time I've ever heard that. Now, that's the first time that's made sense. Well, if that's you, man, we want to talk to you. We want to follow up with you. We have people waiting right now for you to comment, for you to message, for you to hop over in the chat and talk with us because we want you to understand this gospel so that you can believe it and find new life in Christ. So this morning, maybe God is working in your heart and you understand that it is only in the cross that the two pulls of your heart are met. Is there a God of mercy who cares? Yes. Or justice who cares? Yes. Is there a God of mercy who cares for you? Yes. They're one and the same. He loves you and He loves you fiercely and He loves you so much that He sent His Son so that you might be saved. So maybe today, reach out, cry out, trust Jesus. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for this time to spend together. And I pray for those who are watching right now who, who are really understanding the gospel, the gospel for the first time. God, would you just bring their hearts to life? God, would you, would you help them to see Jesus as the full measure of your justice and your mercy? God, and as they see it and believe it, that they would turn from their sins and put their faith in you and find that new life in Jesus. God, I pray that you give them the courage to reach out if they have questions. Their questions don't have to go unanswered. God, but that they can be uh, talked with and just uh, encouraged as they uh, go on this faith journey. And for those who know you as Savior, uh, who are still being molded, who are still being broken, who still endure various trials, God, would you just remind them today that the reason that they go through what they're going through is not because you don't care, but because you do. And you care for them and love them so much that you are not content to let their affections rest on lesser things. But that in all of this, you're turning our hearts towards you and making us fit for the day that we see you in eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.